you might recall that uh, our first week we were together, we talked about Jesus and his relationship with the Heavenly Father, how that was the most foundational, and it was the source of all new life that happened through him, people encountered with him. And we talked that week about how West Meadows can be this place for everyone to have an opportunity to cultivate deep roots in Jesus Christ. So that they themselves can personally experience that transformation, but also have a chance to go deeper into that and, and have it really permeate all aspects of their lives so that others encounter him through them. And then we talked a little bit of a bigger group. We talked about Jesus in the inner three, uh, Peter, James, and John, very, very close relationships he had in his life. And these are guys that really walked very closely with Jesus through his, his three and a half years of ministry. They were able to encourage one another. They were mentored very closely and specifically by Jesus. And through those experiences with him, they had the chance to go forward then and actually lead other people into the same types of experiences in their relationship with the Heavenly Father. We talked that week about how we're striving to be a place where everybody can have relationships upon which they have a person they can lean, upon which person they can learn from, and other people that they can lead. People where you can lean, learn, and lead. And then we got to a bit of a bigger group, Jesus and the Twelve. We talked about how out of his very nature, his human nature, his, his divine nature, this, this desire to be in community flows from those. And he selected 12 guys to be in community with as he ministered in the world. And we talked about how this was like Jesus' life group. And then that day we also introduced this idea that life groups is one of the most important ways that we as a church journey together with one another. It's one of the most important places where you have the opportunity to have authentic community within the, within the church to, to know, grow, and show God's love to all others. And then we got to a bigger group last week, Jesus and his followers, that big group of people from which Jesus chose the 12. And the group of followers is understood as a, a number of people of all kind of different levels of commitment to Jesus, but all on side, all pro-Jesus, all in favor and, and following after him. And, and he didn't use this word, but as we follow history along, we see that those people kind of come to constitute the church as we understand it today. We talked last week about how we, those of us who are here and have given our lives to Christ, are followers of Jesus that we constitute the body of Christ and we come together, we come to assemble together, but it's not just to be together, that's not the end goal. We come together to be on mission together so we can go out and make a difference in the world around us, which brings us to our final group. An important one that we have to consider if we are going to be an assembled people on mission together. And that being this final group, one of the broader groups that exists in Jesus' life, referred to as the crowds. Now you see this word crowds come up a lot when you read the Gospels, in particular in the Gospel of Mark. He talks about these different segments and different groups of people a lot in the Gospel of Mark. But if you, if you start reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, something that comes very, very apparent very early is that the crowds, as soon as Jesus is on the scene, are always around him. The crowds would come towards him. The crowds grew around him. They pressed in against him. They were always there. And when these moments came when Jesus would try to slip away for a little bit of rest or to have an opportunity to, to pray to his heavenly father, he'd make it a moment of separation, a moment of quiet, but they would find him. 
they would come and find him and be around him again. There were times when Jesus would tell his disciples, hey guys, get a boat ready, because there might be a moment where I gotta step into the boat and we're gonna sail across and put some separation. But what would the crowds do? They'd find boats, they'd search for them, and when they found them, they'd be like, hey, Jesus, you didn't tell us you were going here. But they would find him, they would come back and be around him again. Now to me, this sounds like a bit of a headache, right? Now, I, I love being around people, but if you're anything like me, I need some time. I need some time to separate and be alone, to be quiet. Otherwise, I get a little grouchy. I, I get a little stressed if I don't have that time, that personal time to myself. But, but how did Jesus respond to these people? You see, it's interesting. When we look at, at the Gospel of Mark in chapter 6, verse 34, it, it says this. It says that when Jesus saw these very large crowds, these, these people continually gathered around him, pressed in against him, wanted things from him. When he saw these very large crowds, he had compassion upon them. That's how he responded. He responded to the crowds by having compassion upon them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd, he said. They're like sheep without a shepherd. You see, each group we've looked at so far throughout this series, from Jesus and his heavenly father to the inner three to the 12 to the followers, all of those people, all of those groups had one thing in common. They were all, to some degree or another, followers in relationship with Jesus. And from the perspective where Jesus stood, we could look at those people of all being insiders. But this final group, the crowds, they were, they were around Jesus, but they were not yet a part of him. And so we could actually consider them to be outsiders. They were attracted to him. They had left their occupations to come and see him, to hear him, to experience him, to, to be healed by him. But the crowds, whenever you see that word crowds in the Gospels, it's speaking of a group of people who still belong to the world. They still belong to the world. They're not yet followers. They're on the outside looking in. And Jesus had compassion upon them. He had compassion upon them because he knew what they were missing out on. He knew the new life that was available for them, but was not yet theirs. Now, before we go any further, I, I need to just mention that anytime we use this, this language of insiders and outsiders, it's, it, it's dangerous. It, it can be divisive. So we want to be careful of that. It reminds me of, uh, of a story back in... Uh, back in 1961, Dr. Seuss wrote a book, uh, a book called The Sneetches. You ever hear of The Sneetches, Dr. Book? Yeah, it's one of my personal favorites. If you're not familiar with Sneetches, I'd show you a picture of them, but I'm not a Sneetch, and so it won't be up on the slides. <laughs> but these Sneetches are basically yellow bird-like creatures who live on beaches. Yes, the Sneetches on beaches is who we're talking about. And they're exactly the same, except for one thing. You see, these Sneetches on the beaches, some of them have stars on their bellies and others don't. And as the story goes, now the star-bellied Sneetches had bellies with stars, and the plain-bellied Sneetches had none upon theirs. Those stars weren't so big. They really weren't so small. They, they really were so small. You might think that such a thing wouldn't matter at all. But because they had stars, all the star-bellied Sneetches would brag, we're the best kind of Sneetches on the beaches, they would say. With their snoots in the air, they would sniff and they'd snort. We'll have nothing to do with the plain-bellied snort sort. And while they would meet some when they were out walking, they would hike right by without even talking. It's an amusing little story with an important message. It highlights a number of things. One thing in particular for our purposes today is the reluctance for one group 
to cross over to engage with another group. You see, be becoming comfortable, becoming secure as an insider is very natural. It's part of our human nature. And when we feel like we're an insider, anything external that might threaten our status becomes something to be avoided. But that is challenging when we have a mission given to us by Jesus Christ. We have this command to go be missional, which we can understand as having to open our circles to those who are outside of Jesus, that they may come in and experience him. You see, to be a missional church, we must be careful to not simply stare at the stars on ours, otherwise nobody will ever get stars on theirs, unless we do that. But I want to challenge us a little bit further. I want to challenge this insider-outsider thing a little bit further. Because, see, historically, the churches believe that the church is the insider. But we need to be careful with that, too. Because, you see, not only can these be divisive things, but the definition of insiders and outsiders really is a matter of perspective. I'll show you what I mean. There's this well-known story of Jesus in, in Mark chapter 2. Begin in verse 15, where, where Jesus is eating with what the Pharisees called tax collectors and sinners. This is right after the time when Jesus encountered Levi at a tax collector's booth and said, come follow me. And, and Levi would have his name changed to Matthew, who would become one of Jesus' inner twelve. But before that had all taken place, Jesus is eating dinner at a dinner party with tax collectors and sinners. And outside the room, looking in through perhaps a window or of some sort, are the Pharisees, who are appalled that he would do such a thing as that. And they're talking amongst themselves, and they ask Jesus' followers, how could he be inside that place, talking and eating and, and hanging out with those tax collectors and sinners? And upon hearing this, Jesus responded in verse 17 by saying this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Insider, outsider language is happening on two different levels here. On one level, we have the Pharisees, who are, who are the religious elite, who society and community would have considered them the insiders. The tax collectors and sinners that they're looking at are the outsiders. But the tax collectors and sinners are inside the party, while the Pharisees are outside the party, not invited, not welcomed to come in. So who's right? From a different perspective, both of them can see themselves as insiders, the others as outsiders. So who's right? Well, I think the way we break the tie is we look, as is always wise to do, at Jesus. Where's Jesus in the midst of this? What is he doing? What is he trying to accomplish in the midst of all this? You see, the Pharisees saw themselves as insiders who were outside. But Jesus was inside with the outsiders. You see, he was amongst the people who, from their perspective, from the people who were inside that dinner party, from their perspective, Jesus was the outsider. Because he was a rabbi. He was most closely affiliated with those who were outside the room. But for whatever reason, the outsider was invited in. And here's the amazing thing about that. That's actually in keeping with Jesus' mission. That's actually in keeping with what we see his mission described at within the, within the Gospels. Consider, for example, the most 
well-known verses of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his one only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But then look at verse 17 that says, For God did not send his son into the world from the outside going in. God did not send his son from sent his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. We read in the Bible that all creation is under the authority of God. But we also read in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that for now, in the time in which we live, that Satan is the controlling prince of this particular world. Therefore, when Jesus was born, he was born as an outsider entering into the world. When Jesus entered into a dinner party, he was an outsider entering into the world of sinners. He was entering into the world the crowds belonged to. He was entering into the world of those of whom he had compassion. Not to become a sinner. He didn't enter into that to become a sinner. He did it to bring healing. He did it to bring new life to those who were apart from him. You see, that's how change works. More often than not, in all areas of our lives and the world around us, that's how change happens. It happens from the inside. Consider, for example, we have just entered into the glorious season of the flu, right? We all love flu season. So they say that we have to be careful this time of year if we want to avoid getting sick because there's a very real risk that we could do so. Did you know that the flu germs are transferable within a six-foot radius around you? I'll give you a second to look at how many people are within a six-foot radius around you right now. And that might put some nervousness, some angst into some of the individuals here. But here's the thing. You will not get sick unless those germs around you get inside you. If they get inside you, they can then enact a bad negative change and you will end up getting the flu. Which is why we're told, wash our hands. Don't touch our face, our ears, our nose, our eyes. Why? Because those are ways that things can get inside us. And when things get inside, they enact a change. In the case of the flu, a change for the worse. But what do you want inside you? They tell you to go get your flu shot, right? Because you can rub that flu shot on your skin all you want. It's not going to work. It has to get inside you. But once they inject that inside you, another change happens. You suddenly become immunized against, hopefully, the proper strain of flu that's going around. See, that's how change works. The change works by things outside having to get inside which is what Jesus was doing. Now, the church has historically viewed itself as the insiders, trying to enact change in others. And the prevailing strategy for the longest time was allow the outsiders to come in. Allow them to come in. And at one point, I, I know that was effective. At that point when, when the church was still considered an institution in society, that was effective. An institution is defined as an established organization with an identified and demanded role within a community, like schools, banks, government offices, hospitals, libraries, recreation centers. But it's been a long time since the church has been considered an institution within our communities. Those days are past. Look at our own situation, for example. West Meadows was built 25 years ago, one of the first things to be built in the area of Lewis Farms. And for the past 25 years, no other churches have been built. And the community has been perfectly okay with that. 
See, the church is not considered an institution anymore. When the city used to develop recreation areas, when they used to develop uh, areas for, for development of, of residential areas, they would make sure there was room for schools, there was room for recreational areas, there was room for a church. They used to be part of the plan. Now it doesn't happen anymore because it's not considered an institution anymore. See, the reality is, the truth is, we're outsiders. And that's hard to hear and understand at times. But the reality is, is in today's world, we are outsiders. But I want us to embrace, I want us to embrace that position. Because if we're going to enact change for the kingdom of God, it doesn't happen standing at the window, looking inside, casting disdain. It happens by being missional like Jesus, who was an outsider, who was invited in. And when he was invited into the party, he brought with him a dinner gift. The dinner gift he brought with him was the good news. The good news of the grace and the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. That can change a heart, can change a life, can change a home, can change a community from the inside out. Now that might feel disheartening. It might feel disheartening to think that, oh, we're outsiders. But here's the thing, folks, that is exactly the situation. That is exactly the position that God's people have always been in when they have been refined, when they have been risen up, and when they have experienced revival. Let me give you two quick examples. One of the, one of the earliest examples we see of this from the Bible comes from the Old Testament when the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, a people who he said, I will be your God and you will be my people, and God was faithful to his covenant, the people, the nation of Israel, not so much. They, they were kind of good for a while, then not good for a lot of whiles. And God warned them continually, you got to be on board. you got to be committed to the promise that you made me. I will be your God. You will be my people. And we will live in harmony and community and success and prosperity. But the nation had a tendency to rebel. So God warned them time and time again. And eventually, what happened? They went into exile. God allowed Babylon to come and conquer Judah and carry off the king, carry off his family, the priests, and thousands of workers. Now, this was a huge shock to their system because they were the ruling elite. We were the insiders, and now we're carried off to Babylon as foreigners and exiles. And in the midst of this of this world spinning for them, the prophet Jeremiah wrote a letter. And we find this in Jeremiah chapter 29, beginning in verse 4. Jeremiah's letter to them where he instructs them, this is what God says you can expect. And this is what God says I want you to do while you are exiles, while you are foreigners. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 4. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. Settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. You know what? Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. See, the first line we find here is that God is taking responsibility for them being carried off in exile. This is what you were to do. I have allowed this to happen. See, it wasn't beyond God's control. It wasn't beyond his awareness. He wasn't caught sleeping at the wheel. This was part of within the control of his plan for his people. And what is his message to them? When you find yourself in this land as exiles and foreigners, when you find yourself in this place as outsiders, 
build houses because you're going to be there a while. This will not be over quickly. Plant gardens. You're going to need things to eat. Look after yourselves. Those kids that, that you've always thought of having, get married and have some. You know what? You're going to be there long enough that your kids need to get married and you're going to need to have grandkids because you'll be there for more than one generation. This will not be over quickly. Don't listen to the prophets who say, keep your bags packed. The day will return very shortly. We'll be insiders again. No, I have placed you in this exile situation, but it's not without purpose. You see, when he inherent to this command, he's saying, while you live there, build houses, plant gardens, marry, have kids, have grandkids. He's saying also at the same time, remain faithful to me. I have not abandoned you. I've not left you. Those commands I gave you, still follow them. Marry, but don't intermarry. Worship me, don't worship idols. Stay faithful to me. Because you might be in exile, but you are not without purpose. Because you are to live as an example. You are to live as a blessing. I have taken you from where you were to being the outsider on the inside so that I can plant an example in the midst of a people that I have compassion for. Because what does he say in verse 7? In verse 7 he says, Also do this. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Seek the peace and prosperity of your captors. Seek the peace and prosperity of the place I've carried you off to in exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if they prosper, you will prosper. This was a new concept. And this is even hard for us to understand to this very day, that, that if you find yourself as an exile, if you find yourself in bondage, captive, you're not going to seek the peace and prosperity of your captor. The natural reaction is to rebel. No, we need to resist. We, we need to pray for their destruction so that we can return to prominence again, so that we can go back to being the insiders. You know, as I was studying this passage this week, I, I, I just could not get the thought out of my mind of, of how some of these things are happening. Here we are in the heels of the election that happened on Monday. And how important this verse and another verse we're going to look at in a minute are for the time that we're in. You see, when I look around, there's a lot of people responding to what happened. And they're, and they're saying things like, the West is being held captive. The exile continues. Or whatever variation of that we see on, on social media and in the coffee shops have been discussed. And the response is what? The response is, we need to rebel. We need to separate. And I get that. I understand the emotional feeling that comes from it, but it's exactly that. It's an emotional response. It may not be a logical response. But the response I'm more concerned about for us is what is the Christian response to these things? If we stop before we respond and ask the question, how does God want us to respond? How does he want us to act? Well, a verse such as this, what did he tell the exiles? Seek the peace and prosperity of the land I've placed you in. Pray for it. Pray for it. Seek its peace. Seek its prosperity. Because if it prospers, you prosper as well. Because you're in this symbiotic relationship that can't be separated that easily. And he tells the exiles again, remember, I'm the one who carried you into exile. So don't get mad at them. They're just an instrument that I used to fulfill my will. 
If you want to point the finger at somebody, you're pointing the finger at me, he's kind of saying to the exiles. You see, whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever events go on in our lives around us, how we respond to those is at least in part emerging from our view of God. If we believe God has lost control or God can't handle it, we'll try to take care of it ourselves and respond in a certain way. If we believe that God is still on his throne, if we believe that God is still in control of things, we will respond in like manner. And that doesn't mean that we like everything that goes on. It doesn't mean that we are okay or just go along with it. But it does mean we default to trust and faith in God who is still in control. It does mean we pray for prosperity for the people, for the land, for the leaders, for the nations in which God has placed us. That we pray for biblical prosperity. See, biblical prosperity is different than worldly prosperity. Worldly prosperity says that you need to have a lot of finances, a successful business, a fancy car and a home. Those are, those are worldly things. Those are not sinful and godly things, but they are things that sometimes get in the way of our relationship with God. But that's not how he defines prosperity. You see, in God's economy, Prosperity is understood. That, that 10 out of 10 life of prosperity, that 10 out of 10 life is found in John 10.10, 10, where Jesus said, I have come that you may have life, and you may have it to the full. See, biblical prosperity is where we experience the fullness of Jesus Christ in our lives, when we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, when we discover personally that it is better to live life with Jesus than any other option that exists in this world, and then out of an outpouring, as an outflowing of that, in every word and every deed, we live it out before the world to which he's called us. We weave Jesus into our stories so that we, others can experience him through us. We see another example of this in the New Testament where, where uh, Peter, in 1 Peter 2, says this. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires to, which wage war against your souls. Live such good lives among the pagan people, among the world, among the crowds around you. Live such good lives among them that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and then in turn glorify God on the day he visits us. See, Peter is writing to followers of Jesus Christ who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, throughout what is modern-day Turkey. And these followers of Jesus Christ are citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven living in this world at this time, he calls them to embrace their role of exiles and foreigners, embrace their role as outsiders living in the world. He says, don't be drawn into their corruption. Don't allow them to have influence over you. Instead, live such good lives that even if they say bad things about you, even if they speak poorly of you, the life you're living, the actions that they've experienced through you are your defense against the words that some people say. This is a reality for us every day and where we live. We live in a post-Christian world where we cannot assume that people know the name Jesus and can define that name. We can't assume people understand what happens within the walls of a church. That they can't even assume that church happens on Sunday mornings. That's even a foreign concept, that people go to church on Sunday mornings. We can't assume any knowledge, any awareness of, of what we have learned exists within the Bible, even the more familiar stories. We can't assume those things because people are less familiar with the things of God. 
But it's worse than that because into the vacuum of their lives that that has created, into the vacuum of the definition of God and Christianity that that has created has been fed with scandal and understanding of what Christians hate and are against. Because that's what society feeds into that vacuum. See, when I meet people in the world and they find out that not only do I go to a church, but I'm the pastor of a church, whether that's when I'm getting my hair cut or if I'm at a social gathering, if it's a waitress in a restaurant or if I'm volunteering in the city somewhere and people find out that I'm a pastor in a church, they always have questions. And after they always ask me the first question, oh, do you only work one day a week? After they ask me that question, when we get that one out of the way, <laughs> they always have other questions. And these questions just show what that vacuum has been filled with, what their definition of God, their definition of Jesus, their definition of Christian has been filled with that is so often not true to who he is, to his character, to what we're trying to, to be as his people. It reveals past experiences that were not positive. It reveals stories of hurt. The questions they ask me give me the reasons. They reveal the reasons why people are turned off by the church and by God. You see, they've received an, a narrative that is different than the God we read in the Bible. They've heard of a God that, that society has manufactured as opposed to the one that is revealed in Scripture. They don't really have a definition of Jesus that matches the one that we perhaps have encountered in our lives and has made a difference. And so when they ask me, well, what is West Meadows about? It gives me the opportunity to say, well, West Meadows, we're just trying to invite people to discover a life that's better with Jesus. And we do that by living out his grace, truth, and love, which is new for them, which is new for them. You see, and that's our mission. Our mission is to invite people to discover a life that's better with Jesus by living out, by living out, by living out his grace, truth, and love. By living it out so that there is a counter-narrative, a truer narrative, than perhaps what the world says about him and about us. And if we're going to live that out, and it's going to be more than just words upon a document, when we experience the crowds, it begins by embracing our place as outsiders. By living faithfully according to God's will and to his ways. To not see the position of the outsider as a position of being defeated, but as a position of power. Because when we understand that that is where we are in the world, we then come to the point of realizing Jesus is enough. And if Jesus in our lives is enough, then each of us has the ability, has the power, has the opportunity to go be agents and ambassadors of his grace, truth, and love to go into the world to be agents of new life, that we can have the opportunity to be the outsiders who come in to the lives of people, to the homes, to the communities, to the institutions of the world around us and beyond and do what Jesus said. He said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and then glorify your Father in heaven. That is why we do the community engagement events that we do. That is why we take a benevolent offering for Hope Mission to provide a Thanksgiving meal. That is why our youth once a month go down there and serve a meal at Hope Mission. That is why we, we serve refreshments on election day. I guarantee you no other polling station in Edmonton, maybe even further, provided food and lunch for people who are coming to vote. We had to be careful of the colors of the labels that were on things, but, but we navigated that to make sure it was, it was completely unbiased. 
but people were so overwhelmed. There are people who said, I come to this church. I've never seen you before. But they wanted to identify with the positive things that were going on here because they came to vote and they received an example of love. It's the reason why last Sunday or last weekend, a number of our young adults came here on a Saturday night and and made 200 tuna sandwiches and then Sunday morning went downtown to a street mission to serve those to people who have to make a choice between buying groceries and paying bills. And while they handed those sandwiches out last Sunday morning, other people were there singing songs about Jesus and sharing the good news and the difference he can make in their lives. It's why we do some of these things so that as outsiders we are invited in. We can build relationships and we can present a narrative that is true to who Jesus is. That is true to the mission that he has given us as a church. You know, through this series, we've used, through this series we've used a graphic as our home slide. The heart of new life. And you notice on here, there's a heartbeat. To the left, it's, it's there. Life is happening. But it gets to the middle, and it quickens. The pace quickens. Something changes in the middle, and it's very, very subtle. But in the middle are the letters WM in white for West Meadows. It's intentionally subtle. Because people, when they encounter us, they shouldn't see us. They should see Jesus. But it's this vision that West Meadows would be at the heart of new life. That we would so weave Jesus into our stories that when they experience us, they experience him through us. You see, to be at the heart means that that we have to move from the outside to the center. It means that we have to be in a place where we can enact change, where we are a catalyst to the change that happens. Remember, embracing the role of an outsider, fostering new relationships, letting our light shine is the mission that we're striving towards. And I believe that if we can actually do that, if we can be at the heart of new life in people who come into our midst here, into the people that live around us in our communities, and to those that we have a chance to go to and to speak to and to live our lives out before, I believe that if we can do that, that, that people's hearts will quicken because they'll experience Jesus practically tangibly through us. That they'll come to see us as a place where they can cultivate deep roots in Jesus Christ. They'll come to see us as a place where everyone has the opportunity to lean with a friend, to learn from a mentor, and to lead others and find purpose. That they'll come to see us as a place where authentic relationships and community can be grown and and the opportunity within those communities to, to know, grow, and show God's love. That we can be seen as a place where we don't just come together for ourselves, but we open our circles because we're on mission together. And that we'd be a place that strives to be invited into the heart of people's lives, to their homes and to their communities. And the power in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray we would do that and enact change in these places to the glory of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the difference that knowing you makes. God, I pray you'd help us to see this change that you can cause in us. And that as we would have eyes to see that and words to verbalize that, that that we may fall deeper in love with you. And as we fall deeper in love with you, may that just permeate all of our words, all of our actions, all of our attitudes, all of our responses, everything that happens in the world around us. So that when people see us, they see you in us. 
God, I pray for those who may be here who do not yet know you. Remind them, God, that you love them, that you gave your life for them, and that you long for them to live in the fullness of life as the Word of God defines it. God, any here who have not made that profession of faith, where they're sitting right now, can even just say, thank you, Jesus, for paying the price for my sin upon the cross. Thank you for setting me free from the guilt and the shame and and the consequences of my sin. Lord, you gave your life for me. Now I give you mine.